What does heaven look like? Do you ever wonder about that? When I was a kid and went to Sunday school, I thought about heaven a lot. Possibly because the Bible that I brought with me to Sunday school had those illustrations in it, the cartoon depictions of what the Bible says, things like heaven, the ark, the temple look like. The older I get, the less I think about it. Though I wonder if I'll reach a point in the not too distant future where that process begins to reverse itself and I start to wonder a little more. But whether you typically think about it a lot or not, take a moment or two and let your imagination roam about just a little bit in the kingdom of God. What, what does heaven look like? In your heart and mind and your faithful imagination, what does it feel like? What does it smell like? Is it a familiar place somewhere you've been many times? Is it a place you've never seen before? Maybe it's being held in your grandmother's arms, or perhaps sitting at dinner with all your heroes. Maybe it's walking through a grassy meadow with your best friend. I always imagined that heaven would be something like sitting on the pier out on Mobile Bay down the hill from the house where I grew up. We didn't actually go there very often when I was a child, but every time we did, it felt like I had returned to that place on the earth where I belonged more than anywhere else. I've never been the sort of person who can sit still for very long, but in that place, I can let hours go by watching the little waves break across the murky, brash, brackish water, feeling that friendly breeze blowing in my face. I could always tell that it had been too long since I'd been back home when I could feel that ache in my soul that only the coast could soothe. I used to think that that is what heaven must be like until someone told me that there is no sea in heaven. It turns out in the book of Revelation, John, that mystic seer, is given a glimpse at what awaits us and he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The first time someone told me that, I felt like everything that was good had been drained out of the Bible. We were in a class sharing our own imaginations of what heaven might be like, and when I described a sunset from that pier, another student took the opportunity to burst my eschatological bubble. It's not the sunset that's the problem, of course. The reason that that first century author envisioned a paradise in which there is no seashore is because to a first century dreamer, the sea is the sort of place where only nightmares come from. Imagine living on the coast but never knowing when the next big storm is going to blow in. Imagine being out on the water in a little boat 
when it all gets swallowed up by that sort of chaotic and primeval energy that only God could tame. Of course, the ancient imagination of a world in which God's rule and reign were perfect and complete, of course there's no room for that sort of sea in that paradise. But because a part of my heart is always going to belong to the coast, I have a pretty hard time accepting that description from Revelation 21 as a literal depiction of the heaven that awaits us. But ever since that day when that bubble burst, I found that the process, the work that that remark invited me into, the work of being stripped of my earthbound expectations of what God has in store, that that process has been a really good and important step in getting me ready for the coming reign of God. The kingdom of God, Jesus tells us, is like a landowner who doesn't know the first thing about business. Actually, that's not what Jesus says. But the parable he tells us makes it really clear that the economic situation described in that vineyard looks nothing like the vineyards that are on the earth back then or today either. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into the vineyard. No surprises so far. But then... Three hours later, he went out and found more workers and brought them in, and then did the same thing three hours later at noon, and then three o'clock, and finally at five o'clock, bringing in new workers each time, promising to give them what is right. But when it was time to pay everyone, he gave them all the same amount, the usual daily wage. When the workers who had toiled all day long, 12 hours in the hot sun, realized that they had been paid the same amount as those lazy good-for-nothings who had only worked one hour, they were pretty angry about it. Wouldn't we be angry about it? Some of us get angry just hearing this story. Is there anything that hits home with us as clearly and forcefully as the words that those laborers say to the owner of the vineyard, you have made them equal to us, equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and worked in the scorching heat. Now, this isn't my vineyard, they must have said, but that's no way to run a business. You think people are going to show up tomorrow at 6 o'clock in the morning? when they could show up at five o'clock and get paid the same amount, good luck getting anybody to work on your farm. This parable flies in the face of first century expectations as much as it slaps us across our 21st century faces. We're no better than Jesus' disciples at imagining a world in which a business owner would voluntarily pay all of their workers, not in proportion to the work that they do, but simply for showing up at all. But that's exactly what the world looks like when God is in charge. That's how the value of a human being is assessed in God's economy, in the heaven that awaits us. And it's no surprise that it's really hard for us to imagine that when we're here. In this parable, 
Jesus gives us a glimpse into how people are received and valued and rewarded in God's reign. In heaven, we matter to God, not because of what we do or how long we've worked or how much we've produced. We matter to God because God is generous. Take what belongs to you and go, the landowner says. I choose to give to the last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? Our expectations of how God will receive us when we get to heaven are always conditioned by our experience in this life. We expect that people who have been faithful their whole lives will stand ahead of us in that line that waits at the pearly gates. We assume that the best seats at God's banquet table are reserved for the martyrs who gave up their whole lives for the sake of the reign of God. We expect that the golden jewel-encrusted crowns worn by those who followed Jesus their whole lives will outshine the cheap, Tin replicas that those who only forsook their wicked ways at their last breath will have to wear in God's reign. But that's not how God's reign works. Our way of making sense of things doesn't make sense in that place where all people are valued by their creator, not because of who they are or what they do, or how good they've been, but simply because God is the one who loves all of us with limitless generosity. Our understanding of how things work doesn't often fit within the reign of God, which is probably why Jesus keeps telling these parables when he's trying to describe God's reign straightforward thinking that doesn't challenge our assumptions about this earthly life rarely produce a dream worthy of God's reign. But must we say that the reverse is also true? If the way things work here on earth can't be used as a model for how things are in God's reign, must we also say that how things are when God is in charge make a poor blueprint for how life is supposed to be here. The kingdom of God is like a landowner who hired laborers all throughout the day but paid them all the same amount, a denarius, a day's wage, enough money to feed themselves and their family no matter how long they worked. That's no way to run a business if you're trying to cut costs and maximize profits. But Jesus wasn't giving out business advice. Jesus was inviting us to imagine ourselves in the reign of God. Now surely the stock market would be in a lot of trouble if preachers like Jesus got to decide what corporate policy would look like. But what if... What if CEOs and corporate board members and hedge fund managers and day traders 
and even casual investors like you and me, what would happen if all of us woke up and suddenly realized that the value of a human being in this life is no different than the value of a human being in the next? Could we maybe, just maybe, figure out how to live together in this world if we all agreed that the real, true, and eternal value of a person isn't tied to their output or the value they add to an economic model, but simply to their basic humanity and the personhood that all of us share. I freely admit that I don't know how to do that. I don't. I don't know how to get from the world we live in into the radical reign of God and back into this world. It's the back into this world that gets us every single time. I don't know how to do that. But I do know that you are loved by God, not because of what you have accomplished, but because that's who God is, the one who loves you generously. I know that your place in the reign of God is secure, not because of who you are, but because of who God is. I know that you are important to God, not because of what you have made, but because God has made you. I believe that starting point has the power to change this world, not only in the life that awaits us, but in the one we know here and now. Because once we recognize that God has already made all of us equal in God's eyes, then the illusion that some people are worth more than others disappears completely. 